0: Leaders' credibility begins with personal success. See, people only follow you truly if you come across as a true success, but it ends with helping others achieve their personal success.
1: Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
2: Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Ms. Rita Gruber. Rita has more than 35 years experience as a senior executive in retail and healthcare management, with 23 of those years being in human resources and operations at IntegraMed and RMA of New Jersey. Rita is now president of the Gruber Group, LLC. She does consulting work with MedTech for solutions. They serve RE practices and clinics across the country. She's hired and onboarded executives and staff in all RE disciplines, coached and mentored physicians, managers, and staff in leadership and performance competencies, and volunteered her experience to help students prepare for their job search and interviews. She really is one of my favorite people in this field. Ms. Gruber, Rita, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health.
0: Oh, thank you, Griffin. And again, thank you for this opportunity. And I guess this is a a mutual respect and admiration relationship that we have many generations apart, but I certainly respect all the work that you do too, Griffin.
2: Well, I think you're one of the original gangsters of practice management in the field, and so many people look up to you, and you've you've touched so many people in different eras of the field, and a lot of it has had to do with your development and leadership. And I'd like to steer our conversation today a bit more about that, about developing leaders. And I'm wondering how you came to have that passion and focus in the first place.
0: Well, the core issue is all businesses Rise and fall on the quality of their leadership. Part of it, since we're talking about my multi generations in an executive role, a lot of it comes from my personal reformation from the old command and control that existed when I first became a boss, as the cliche was, or a manager, and the concept of pleasing your boss to the beauty of today's new approach of. Service, mentorship, and coaching. So, my passion lies with the fact that as I'm ending my career, I would like to help others stay who they are and still become effective, influential leaders. Okay. Subject matter expertise is critical, whether you're the physician, the nurse, or the finance manager, but people expertise is the most critical to be successful and influential it's personal and i guess at the same time it's organizational some people are born gifted in building relationships and others have to work a little bit harder about developing the skills
2: i wanted to ask if if how well that can be learned and how innate it is but first i want to go back to something you brought up about the older era and that reputation of command and control. I think when we think of management, leadership, bosses, supervisors, the conversation very much is, well, a few decades ago, it very much was command and control. Today is more of the, you know, Jeff Bezos having the Amazon.love philosophy, whether it's genuine or not, is up for debate. But it, that's very much the ethos of leadership now service and passion, as you mentioned. Previously, reputation had been command and control. Is that exaggerated or was it really like that, where it was very much, I'm the boss, this is the way it is a few decades ago? And do you really think that is all but gone today?
0: All right, a couple of things. It truly was, just as you mentioned, more command and control. Yes, I'm the boss. I know best at this level of my expertise, and I'm going to give you the work to do. Now, you could still be a kind person. You could still be reasonably respectful and caring about the employees reporting to you, but You were not, and I'm gonna use this phrase several times through our talk today, Griffin, you weren't sharing the journey, whatever the business journey was. It was, you could have a decent relationship. As I said, you could be kind, you could bring in donuts at every Friday morning, you could be a good guy, but you were not sharing. They were people who worked for you, you were the person in control. Now, part of the problem, Griffin, and I guess why you and I are talking today, that isn't totally gone. People might object to using the term, are you a command and control manager? And yet, they live more by their title or their position, which we'll, yeah, we'll also hopefully touch on. And They don't realize that that level, the lowest level, and John Maxwell, one of the big leadership gurus, has sort of laid it out for us. I mean, I can go through his five steps if you would like to do that to keep in line with your.
2: Yeah, let's go through it at a really high level, because I think John Maxwell and others are part Jim Collins are part of the reason why this shift has happened and so yep. I, I imagine that started and just based on the era of those guys I'm imagining this this ethos coming into the workplace more in the late 80s popularizing in the 90s cementing in the 2000s is the way I'm seeing the timeline but if you were to to recap those at a high level, what is that new type of doctrine that they're bringing in?
0: Well, what he say is like what you and I were just discussing. People lean on their position. <clears throat> they're promoted too often just because they're the best at their job, which does not necessarily mean <laughs> they should be in management or that they're leaders. And i what they're saying is they have rights. So people just follow them because they have to. But if they don't have the right influence and mentorship and coaching, they're going to have turnover in their direct report and they really can't stay at that level. They have to move to building relationships and getting results, et cetera. So that's the Less Than Reader's Digest version but a lot of people still do base their entire influence just on their title rather than trying to make their people better and having influence relationships and service to the people who report to you are core to what we're discussing today
2: so that's the first is it so that's is that sort of like the basic the most fundamental form of, of leadership, or I guess maybe the most, if you haven't advanced to a more degree, just having the, you're in the position because you're, you're leaning on your technical expertise and people follow you because they have to, what, how does it advance from there?
0: Okay. Well, again, when hopefully you realize that you do have a turnover or people are not as responsive to you or cliche engaged in their work or feeling empowered in their work. And empowerment, again, is very vague because we can only build our empowerment when we buy, which we'll hopefully talk about in a moment, buy into a mission or a purpose or a why. And hopefully this lowest level of management or leadership will learn they have to build a better relationship with their direct reports and with their peers and with those ahead of them in the traditional org chart. It's a 360 relationship building, Griffin, to truly bear influence in the practice or in any organization and serve the people who report you. And I'm going to keep getting back to that term serve because once you become a leader slash manager your primary responsibility again is to impact the practice by building up the people who report to you showing them they're important and helping them do their work better again why do coaches Earn so much money when they're speaking at business events like NFL coaches or basketball coaches or whatever, because they never start a day without a playbook. They know what the what plays they're looking at, they've measured the competition, and they have determined to bring out the best in each one of their players on the field or on the court. And that's what we're expected to do in leadership in, in every organization.
2: One of the statements that you said has me thinking, which was they'd start to build empowerment and mission when they when they start to see I'm paraphrasing, but they're just starting to see less of a return from the dictate style. They need to empower people to buy in to get a greater return. And so I'm wondering how much of it is people changing their leadership style because they know we other model from top down isn't working as well. It isn't returning as much as it used to. How much of it is it them changing versus how much of it is that the current style favors particular personality profile that it didn't before. In other words, the nice gal guy with other skills is able to win a lot more with their empathetic style, their natural personality than they may have been able to 20 to 30 years ago. How much of it is changing to accommodate what's working versus just the, the current style favors a personality type now that it maybe didn't previously.
0: That is, a compound complex question. That's a great question. That could be just answering that question could be the balance of the hour and touching on on all the bullet points I have sitting in front of me. Okay, let's go back to that. All right, first of all, let's just keep in our world of the reproductive medicine practice or clinic and the top boss is the physician. Okay. So a lot's going to depend on has that physician taken the time to look at him or herself regarding their own leadership style. Now, before you and I formally began this talk, we touched on your prior podcast. And I'm going to mention three
2: physicians
0: that have spoken with you, Griffin. Powerhouses. Powerhouses. Wow, I you really are a fan
2: it's, of the show. If you can rattle off three just like that.
0: Yes, I, I can. <laughs> and they're three of my favorites. Now, I don't know Dr. Alper, Mike Alper as well. We would know each other if we met at ASRM. But I do know his history. And he absolutely is a leader. I have not worked directly with Dr. Alper, but I know others who have. You and I know several from ARM. And he is very aware of his leadership style. He's very aware of himself and what he brings to not just his patients, but to his people and to his growth and development. So that I know. And then two of my favorites that I know personally and have worked with personally are Michael Levy, Dr. Levy from Shady Grove. And they didn't get to be the biggest practice in this country without solid leadership from Dr. Levin, of course, Dr. Sagaskin, the two founding partners, and Bob Stillman, again, another phenomenal doctor, who are among the best people leaders, not just patient caregivers, but people leaders in our industry. And I've known them since maybe 1990. Seven ninety-eight, And then another great guy is Dr. Copperman. And again, the success of RMA of New York is due to Dr. Kopperman and his three other founding partners and how they've, again, taken care of their patients, their successes, their outcomes, their clinical recognition, their scientific recognition, but the people the people who work for them and how they have led them and allowed others to even direct them and lead their people. So it does start with the physician Griffin. Okay. And getting back again to your question is the next thing is a true leader can't be always focused on the immediate satisfaction or politics of satisfying their boss. Their success in the practice will be bringing results and bringing results through people minimum turnover their people being their direct reports being engaged and as you rise on the org chart your leadership vision you always look to the horizon and when you get there there's a next horizon so you share again the growth journey with the physicians who are so to speak owning and running the practice. So I think we see that with certain groups of our colleagues in arm Griffin, that kind of leadership and relationship they have with the physicians running their practice and with the, and their service to the people who are working at the practice at all levels. I think we have also seen managers and practice administrators, et cetera, struggling because they're focused on pleasing their bosses day by day instead of everybody getting the big picture Mm -hmm. and knowing that the physicians can only be as successful as the leaders they bring with them on their journey whether that's in the laboratory, whether that's in the clinical arena, or whether that's in the administration lead, uh, arena or department. So I'm hoping I'm answering your question, big picture. What do you think?
2: I'm wondering if, though, one point that you make is that it starts from the top, or that is to say that the physician is at the top. Tenet of leadership of people in the practice is not focusing on pleasing the boss in the day-to-day in in sort of every little sense. But I wonder, is that still not the fault and or responsibility of the boss? In other words, I consider everything that happens at Fertility Bridge my fault. I'm 100% responsible because in my case, I'm the sole proprietor of this company. So even if it's someone at our social, you know, if it's our social media manager that does a mistake, even if it was someone else that was creative manager that was supposed to be supervising them for something. If something happens at the end of the day, it's my fault. And I don't mean that in that I need to micromanage everybody because I don't. What I mean by that is if someone doesn't have the tools and or if they don't have the accountability above them, it's because somewhere in the chain that gets trace back to me. I didn't put something into place, I didn't hire someone, I didn't invest in something, and so I think that it's my fault and my responsibility. So if there is a culture of having to please the boss at the day-to-day to show, "Here boss, here's what I'm doing. I see how productive I am," and if that's happening, isn't it the culture from the person at the top, in this case, the physician.
0: You are correct in your leadership approach to running your business within your own company and helping other practices. So you are correct. But with the physicians, okay, that is not always correct. Like we joke about physicians all think they're entrepreneurs, but really, you know, Wharton is not part of their medical education. I think what... Medical schools are starting to focus on more is relationships. You used the term empathy before. Empathy is actually become a critical a critical attribute that we all have. It's just how is it developed? Okay, but okay, the physician too often throughout the country, I have come across physicians. Who the old cliche, when they say jump, all of the management team, and I'm using that term deliberately, should say, How high, boss. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. If accounts receivable falls a hundred days behind, they're looking more to blame than to bring in the manager and say, What can we do to fix this? I need you to sit and Talk to me and let's say, how do we fix it together? What do we need to do? So from the get-go, and this is even important with onboarding and at the hiring level, the founding physician has set the vision and the mission. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then they need to communicate that from their heart. It was personal to them. That's what happened when they started the practice it's personal. I have a personal mission. I have a vision for this practice. But then they need to solicit the buy-in from others, from the staff to what eventually becomes their leaders and managers. They need others, and again, I'm using the same term, to take the journey with them. They give the purpose The day to day. As Simon Sinek, I'm sure your generation is very familiar with Simon Sinek. I love Simon Sinek. Me too. Don't you? I love him. I love watching him on YouTube. Now, he wrote the book Why, but he is not the first or the only, again, leadership management guru that uses that term. The physician in the practice, from the founding physicians to every physician, has to set that why to their employees. And then it excites the people. They have a passion. They have a purpose. It pulls them back to the vision. Again, the why. And that empowers people. And it's a self-motivation. I think, Griffin, you've learned uh, we really can't motivate people. We have to give them a reason to motivate themselves. So all these talks about how do you motivate people? I don't believe we can but I do believe we can create an environment that empowers the people to motivate themselves. They want to contribute to that physician journey. They will want their work to matter. And again, as corny as it sounds, they also want to be loved in a business sense. So that why That Simon Sinek, so many other people propose. The why is the purpose for the work, and that has to come from the physician. The what is the vision that the physician is giving everybody. And the how then is the strategy. How do we do this as a as a team? So, no, that's not evident as widespread as it should be in our field throughout the country. No. And the leaders now that we see and work with and we call colleagues, they have to start learning how to sometimes generate that themselves in their sphere of influence, if in fact, the physician may not be doing it. And again, we see the success, we see the results from IVF Boston. We see the results from Shady Grow. We see the results from RMA New York. And yeah, I don't think you really had anybody from my old group or her, of New Jersey, but those three founding partners gave us passion every day i had Jason
2: from RMA of New Jersey. Oh,
0: that's right.
2: And so I saw Rich, that. You're right. Richard Scott, if any of your team is listening, your invitation stands to have the your founder's story on. So I think you might have just poked the bear a little bit in a good way, Rita.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you, you never know. Actually, they did a beautiful, beautiful uh, video. I was just back for the 20th anniversary of RMA of New Jersey. And of course, EV RMA now is global. But the, the videos on the founding were phenomenal. And again, like Shady Grove, like RMA New York, like IVF Boston, there were 25 people, including three physicians, that started RMA of New Jersey when they left the Institute of St. Barnabas. And Griffin, I would say, out of those 25 employees, including, as I said, the three the three founding physicians there's probably 18 or 19 left still there wow that's phenomenal and that's true with the other three practices i've mentioned their employee retention because of the passion the vision and the strategy those physicians have implemented throughout their practice and throughout their growth is is critical and i would like everybody to learn from these these successes. So that's, yes, so that's how important the physician can be. But leaders within the practice sometimes have to learn how to do that with their groups if the physician is not quite as inspiring or motivating as some of the ones we've discussed here on this talk.
2: Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad. And you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing... A couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment Fertility Bridge can help you with that it is better to have a third party do this we've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field It's such an easy way to try us out it's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system Without it practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic it's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes there is no downside to doing this for your practice only upside now back to inside reproductive health So maybe the founding physician isn't inspiring or motivating. Those are personality traits. And if someone is a wonderful scientist and physician, then they shouldn't necessarily have to rely on those traits. But at the very least, if one really is the founding physician of a practice group that is meant to have growth or even sustainability over a a decent period of time doesn't that founding physician have a responsibility to provide safety for those leaders to be able to to motivate and inspire in their way or to at the very least be able to lead in the the functions of the company and i'm thinking of someone that we've worked with Recently, And I'm not even going to say what sex they are or what part of the world they are, but this individual, because I know this individual listens to the show and they're a really good person. I've had the conversation with them that, I'll just say, Doc, Doc. the reason why you're not getting the results that you want is because we've worked with six different people on your team thus far, meaning they're constantly changing. And I said to this person, I said, hey, can I just have a conversation with you? Your team tries to screw each other over. And the reason why they do that is because you're constantly changing who's in this position and the only way they can feel Like they're not next on the chopping block is to put someone else's head on it. And I see that mistake when other agencies and other firms go in to pitch a new client or to win a new client. They'll either put the marketing director's head on the chopping block, they'll put the agency, the other agency's head on the chopping block. And I don't do that because all it's really doing, Rita, in my opinion, is. Pushing someone else out of the way on the chopping block to say, hey, "Hey, hurry up, chop their head off," so then then you can chop mine off. And I try to uh, address that, but isn't it the responsibility of the leader of the company to provide a degree of safety to where they feel like they can, you know, make some mistakes, have some level of forgiveness at at least within human reason, so that they can be the ones that are Motivating, or at the very least, managing adequately.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, every work environment, you have to, the leaders have to provide a safety net. And each individual leader will consider the leaders in this conversation, uh, the people that run the clinical division, the laboratory division and the administrative division, you know, or as you say, the head of marketing, the head of finance. Okay, those leaders, to be effective, you're correct, have to provide a safety net for their employees to make a mistake, cause we will all mis- make mistakes.
2: Well, I'm I'm, I'm up at a, at a level higher than that. I, I agree with that statement 100%, but even to get to there, to where the leaders can provide the employees with the safety net, doesn't the founding physician or the principal of the company or the chief executive or whoever's at the top in, in this case, don't they have to provide those leaders with that safety net in order for the leaders? Oh, to
0: as, the oh absolutely. And then the leaders have to, like, if as we'll get back to what the example I use because this is always a hot topic. Marketing and finance are two hot topics, as you know, mm-hmm. day by day in every physician practice. Where are my new patients and where's my money? Okay. Hot topics, even in the best leadership environment. So if you look at finance and you say, okay, we're 100 days out. First of all, The finance manager has a responsibility to, so to speak, defend their team, recognize what's falling short, be able to present that to the physician without being cut off at the knees, okay? And the physician being far less than understanding. But then the physician has a right to say to that finance manager, okay? all right, I would like a report or a spreadsheet. I would like to see your plan. Let's, and again, it's not you, let's fix this. Let's get back to 65, 70 days outstanding, what might be appropriate for that practice in that state. Let's get back to that, and I would like a plan from you. I would like a timeline. And if it's going to mean an increased cost in staff hours, I would like to know that and I would like to have an opportunity to approve it. So now you can be disciplined as that physician, but you can also be respectful and appropriate and give the top leadership a chance to fix a situation. Is that what you're sort of getting at, Griffin?
2: yeah as opposed to just sort of letting whatever is new and shiny take the place of someone who's currently trying and you know it could be we're not getting this result in <laughs> in a very short unrealistic period of time so i'm going to move to the next one and then i'm going to move to the next one and as opposed to i think what you're talking about is having a plan having key performance indicators allowing someone to push back so They can provide a realistic option because I think the alternative just breeds, well, I know that all I'm going to really be able to do here is buy myself some more time by throwing someone else under the bus. And I think that sabotages the entire organization. I see it sabotage many organizations.
0: Oh, yes. If we're getting into the marketing field, I can see if a physician does not feel they're getting enough patients referred. I mean, that's the bread and butter, correct? That's the bread and butter business, those referring physicians, and is uh, very unhappy with the marketing manager or director and threatens their job. That puts him or her in a survival mode. And then that means the people out in the field, now I'm used to calling them physician liaisons, out in the field, they all feel their job is in jeopardy. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's right. And to everyone listening, this is why I don't talk to your marketing director in the initial conversations. And I try to be very delicate about that, but I just say, "Listen, I'm mm-hmm. going to talk to the principal or our company is just not going to engage with yours." That's the that's just the way that it has to be. And part of the reason is because the the relationship is very different and one of the the, that those reasons is because when the relationship has started with the marketing director it's very much a place where they feel threatened and i don't want that to to happen we don't come in and say your marketing director is doing a lousy job or your pls are doing a lousy job that's rarely the case where where we say that and it's never the case where we say it immediately if it and Part of that reason is because we want that stability coming from the top. We don't want jumping from one solution to another or passing the buck. And that really needs to be assigned to the person at the top. But we don't say, hey, these people are doing a lousy job. We say, if there's a hard conversation to have, let's have it now because otherwise, when something inevitably doesn't work, then It's people throwing each other under the bus. And I I think that that is damaging in all organizations.
0: Oh, it's yes. It's lethal. You're correct. And what usually happens in that kind of a culture is the good people, the star performers, are the first ones to put their resume out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the ones that jump ship first, say, oh, I can't work in this kind of a culture. Where every other month I'm worried about the axe falling on my boss or I'm getting blamed for his or her deficiencies. And the good employees can always find jobs. And then what you're left with are very often the second string players. If the good people start leaving, have you found that to happen?
2: I've lived that. I've been that person in (laughs) in the corporate world. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to start my own company, because I noticed I worked in radio advertising and sales for my first real job. And I did that for half a decade. And I noticed that the... The people that were excellent, that brought the most value to the company were treated the same as the people who were cancer cells within the company. In fact, sometimes they were were treated worse because they didn't complain. And sometimes the people that were the cancer cells were the squeaky wheel and got more attention. And it really made for an organization that wasn't high growth, that wasn't forward thinking, that wasn't adapting to change. And I thought, you know, it would just be so much better if the good people were rewarded, the, the middle people were mentored to, to perform more like the, the great people. And, and then the lousy people, if they really are sabotaging or let go immediately. Well, that's correct
0: absolutely correct so you know again that's you could have another podcast seriously just on performance management and talent development okay within a practice because yes time and time again if you have physician leadership that isn't paying attention and you have Department managers or leadership that are not listening appropriately, even to the silences, you start losing the good employees who say, You know, what am I? Am I stupid? You know, I do my work and her work, <laughs> get the same amount of money, no recognition, and she's still here getting an average performance evaluation. I don't think this is the culture. me to succeed and grow so we're back to the mindset starting with the founding physicians down throughout the practice that service and developing others is a key ingredient to patient success and good patient outcomes and the growth and the financial success of the practice so Again, you know, this is what we have to develop, and this is why it's become such a passion. I mean, people are talking about you know emotional intelligence, which is a subset that I'm also very passionate about, and that brings in self-awareness and empathy, etc. With patients and with each other, and with your the employees who report to you. But yes, a practice cannot. Cannot sustain good patient outcomes, good patient volume, good reputation in the community, and growth and financial success unless they decide to achieve good leadership skills. Now, nobody's going to be the perfect leader. But that good physician leader will learn how to depend on others to share the journey, and usually that could be the CEO. You know, the the well, executive director, if you're still part of the Integument Network, or possibly your CEO as these big companies, Shady Grove and IVF Boston or or RMA of New York and New Jersey have their CEO. Learn how to depend on these people and their expertise. Learn how to depend on your clinical manager and her expertise, et cetera. And that's good leadership also. Admit what you don't know. And don't have time to learn. So I'll depend on your expertise. And then as you see the successes, you will trust these people more and more. And respect and trust influence are all critical in a good leadership culture. With this depending so again, on other I think
2: theme that you just brought up, it really touches on what I have posited has been part of the reason for moving towards consolidation and corporate interest in the field and larger fertility networks and business structure coming in on the back of venture capital and private equity, the of depending on others. And I'm not saying that everyone has to do it in that way, but the skill set that you're describing of leadership, it's not an easy one to come by. It's not easy to come by as a natural God-given or universe-given talent set to have. And I think it, in many cases, it's very, very unreasonable to, to expect someone to have that talent set and to have the talent set of being a brilliant clinician and scientist and physician and then expecting them to have the time and focus to be able to develop both. I think there's just very few people that can do that. And there really are amazing physician leaders that that can do both. I think many people are going to be better at one or the other. And for that reason, I feel like the consolidation that's happened, the larger fertility networks has been a response to this shift. And I think in the mid-20th century, for example, where this the general practice model sort of come from, it was the command and control, didn't have to necessarily be a leader with all of the skills that a leader has to have today. We've established that leaders today do have a much different skill set. And to have both, to be a, an REI and to be able to lead a company, especially one scaling with several dozen, several hundred, over a thousand employees is exceptionally rare. And so I wonder if you see that, if you think that the having CEOs now where we didn't have those in practices 40 years ago, outside of just really large health systems and having that type of structure and executive director and consequently the private equity and venture capital that comes with it is a response to this void of the founding physician often not being able to do all of these things that a leader has to do today, especially at scale.
0: Again, you you throw out these phenomenal questions, Griffin. <laughs> and again, each one of them can be its own podcast. Okay. There are many reasons today, yes, that you have these amalgamations, these integrations, the venture capital, I mean, that's huge in healthcare today through all disciplines of healthcare. So because one of the core reasons is finances, because it's very hard to be a classic one or two physician practice. And make money with what insurance companies are reimbursing still in our field so many states do not mandate reproductive care etc etc so bottom line is one of the driving forces okay for these major amalgamations and seeking venture capital and diversification of your practice you know you whether you open a, um, a surgery center or you start investing in a pharmacy. So many of our physicians are also diversifying the types of businesses they're in. Okay, the other thing is you are correct, absolutely correct. You're not going to find a physician who is thoroughly focused on the clinical and scientific aspects of his vocation, his chosen vocation, help patients become a family okay that's going to have john maxwell's 21 attributes of leadership not going to happen but what we are looking at as a leader is what i just spoke about a while ago is even if you're not ready for these amalgamations or you just want to have monster growth on your own recognize again other people's expertise listen Stay open to advice, stay open to change and rely a little bit on other people and getting back to a few minutes ago, allow them to occasionally make a mistake and then regroup and regroup quickly. You can regroup from a mistake. So I, again, I agree that the great clinical and scientific minds okay, in our field, predominantly those who are physicians, okay, are not going to have every top leadership skill. Impossible. That's not their focus. But they can develop and learn better people skills getting back to some of your experiences sometimes if i'm in a client practice just teaching a physician to say thank you is huge don't have to have donut day make your own ice cream Sundays. sometimes just to walk up to the front desk and say it was a tough day today thank you you saw us through it was as smooth as smooth could be under the circumstances. I just wanted to say thank you. That's huge, huge respect, recognizing a job well done. And while you're taking your growth journey, reward as you go along, and sometimes the reward is just a thank you. I don't know if that it appears to be agreeing with you, Griffin, but I do see your point. But still, the physician... Has to develop very deliberately better people skills, and has sometimes the managers have to say that you know it. Don't come up and and or don't walk out and go out for lunch and look like you're angry at the world. Even if you are, just walk through smiling. If you pass somebody, just nod or say hello and go out and calm down. We're all humans. We all have a wide range of emotions emotions again are wrong it's how we demonstrate those emotions that become either right or wrong so just disciplining your emotion as you're walking through the practice to go out to lunch or go off to the hospital for a surgery can speak volumes because everybody's looking at the leaders starting with the physicians down and the mood and the attitude they're demonstrating on any given day. Have you been to a practice Griffin that people just say, okay, Dr. So-and-so is in the building. What mood is he or she in today?
2: Yes, I have.
0: Yeah. So it's not, again, it does not require the full gamut of leadership skills that you would expect in other areas of the practice but people skills would be critical you could have had a a horrible disagreement (laughs) with your spouse at home before you left and when you come in the building does it go away of course it doesn't go away but try not to have your body language speak that aggravation because people take it personally They don't say, oh, Dr. So-and-so must have had a disagreement with his spouse or had a bad driving experience in his commute to work. They personalize it. Oh, what is he mad about here today? What is she disgusted with today or disappointed in today? Must have been on the phone on her way to work. And you have to be aware how you're being perceived by the people who work in the practice.
2: Why do you think that you've embraced this so much, Rito, that you've been so interested in adapting to the new style? Not just adapting, but really embracing it. And because I see people that are a lot, if I can be frank, that are a lot closer to my age than yours that behave much, much older in their mentality of, ah, oh, this these kids now. I see people now that I'm in my mid-30s complaining about the new generation of, of people in their early 20s entering the workforce. And I think, do you not remember us going through this just 12 years ago? And <laughs> whereas you yourself have really always invested in learning new things, in embracing new people. And it's one of the reasons why I've just gotten attached to you because you were one of the first people to see potential in me, I think. And you always encouraged me to take on leadership positions and you encouraged me to reach out to other people. And I, I, part of the, I see it as as you being uh, that's maintained cultural relevance. And I want to have the the same thing. I want to be rocking for a long time career. And I think part of doing that involves bringing people up. But also I, you know, if I can pay you the compliment, I call you the youngest person in the field. And I remember two years ago, I think it was we were in Atlanta and we were having lunch together and you said, Griffin, I want to talk about blockchain. And I thought, Rita, you're so freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> because you're constantly adapting and learning. And a lot of people get old before they're even 30 and and stay kind of in, in a mentality of an idealized version of of things that may or may not have been. And you're constantly adapting. And I think it's a lot, probably a lot of work and takes a lot of bandwidth. And I wonder why you do it.
0: Okay. Well, first of all, I, I truly love people and I love to learn from people. I love to learn. Okay. And the the more serious end of that is I truly think I failed my leadership role in retailing. I was in retailing oh, just about 15 years. I was fortunate. I was a uh, part of a female experience i'm I'm from that generation that I have scarred from hitting the glass ceiling. So in my world of New York retailing in administration, buying offices were always different in New York retailing, I was the second woman in the chain's history that was promoted to what we called then an executive director in a, in in, a, in one of the stores. But I was the only woman that survived that role more than a year, and other promotions up to that level. I was either the first or second woman. And again, the only woman who survived it. And I had a personal reason to do that. I I was raising three daughters alone, and I certainly wanted a career and good financial stability. But I think I spent more time focused on the numbers and pleasing the bosses, Griffin, than on the people. And yet I was very fortunate. I became what they called their best closer. We were in a process of closing down, and the chain really almost shut down when our current president bought us. But that said, <laughs> I was a good closer because we had minimum shortage, and shortage comes more from employees than outside staff. And the employees stayed, so the doors were locked. So there was a part of me who liking people came through and walking the floor and talking with them and talking with them personally, my was part of my persona and that came through, but yet on a business end it was sort of schizophrenic I was about money square footage making the numbers, saving the budget, et cetera, et cetera, and getting promoted to a bigger store. So when I left retailing and was choosing my new career, my new career sort of found me, and that was IDF America at the time before it even became IntegraMate. That was when I decided I wanted to bring to my career more of who I am and develop better leadership skills. And that was another journey of 15 years, truthfully, Griffin. And I'd say by the time I left RMA of New Jersey, consistently learning, learning our business, learning what's happening in the business, and learning healthcare—not just human resources or performance management or or business strategy—I was able to integrate my true caring for people and still live within. A lot of the regulatory framework of HR, we were almost 400 employees when I left RMA. They're now almost 700 employees and still bring compassion and your employer cares about you to my every day. And I'd say if if I annoyed any group, it was above me (laughs) rather than my peers or below me. But other than that, I just think you have to keep evolving as a person, Griffin. And I'm facing another birthday soon. (laughs) And I don't want to stop what I'm doing even on this part-time consulting basis. And I love I have grandchildren. Uh, that are your contemporaries, And I learned from them all the time, Griffin. And that keeps my grandma connection very special and very special to those young people. I'm never going to show them how to bake cookies because I don't bake cookies very well. (laughs) Uh, Maybe from a Pillsbury tube. (laughs) But when they're putting together a resume or they're having a problem on the job or whatever, they give grandma a call or send a text, are you available? Or they send me an email, can you look this over, grandma? And I love that relationship. I just do. Or they'll talk about maybe a dating relationship or 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 something else that's personal. So your generation and the generation now that's following you are so interesting and and so different that. Shame on anybody who does not want to get in tune with what you have to teach us. And we still have a lot to teach you. And by the way, you know what's going to the Supreme Court? The term "Okay, Boomer. (laughs) Did you know that?
2: As is, I think it's an ageist term. I think it harkens back to what you're talking about right now, Rita. Is the other side of a conversation I had on the podcast last year with Hannah Johnson from Vios about the you know the millennial-boomer divide is is not just a generational management issue, but is also an ageist issue, and it goes both ways. And I see my generation now that we are in our mid-thirties, now that we do have some powers in our executive director roles, owning companies, starting to say, well to heck with these guys that didn't cut us in on the deal for the last 12 or 15 years. And I think that's a mistake. And I don't like the term "okay, Boomer because I don't like anyone being discounted for their age. And one of the reasons I, I, I like about your style is that I think I'm a lot more eager to learn from you. I'm I'm always eager to learn from people in general, but I it makes it very easy because you are it's a two-way conversation and I think people would be really remiss not to realize that there's always something more to learn and the wealth of experience that older generations have is really t- compounded in a beneficial way with the youth and a little bit of na- naivete and ingenuity of younger generations and so i don't want to you know interrupt your point too much but i would feel remiss concluding the show without adding that.
0: Oh, no, I so appreciate it. And you're right. I mean, I hope we have a relationship that even becomes personal when I'm not doing any business anymore. You know, it, as much as it might not be a professional for this podcast, but I always joke, I have a granddaughter for you. But so I, I laugh about that because you could ask my daughters. I've said that more than once. She's in New York now and she's actually in sales. She's in actually healthcare sales. But all of that said, all kidding aside, I think, again, we get back to the culture of the work environment. So if that 60-something employee is so afraid that the younger team now is out to get their job or demean them in any way, they get defensive, they're not open to change, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes, again, a toxic environment. The, yes, the them against us, the young against old. And somehow, whether it's intended or not, some discriminatory behavior can sort of seep in to that environment. And unfortunately, become litigious for the practice, unfortunately. And that's not where it was all intended in the first place. So again, it's how do you introduce things? I can, I remember one day Dr. Burr called another colleague of me and into his office, and they were about to promote somebody, certainly much younger than me, not necessarily my colleague. And he brought her in. To the room, and he said, "So and so, you know, you know Rita and and he said they are a font of information for you to help you succeed. So I'd like you to spend time with you with them, and I'm going to help create that time. And I want you to start today by going out to lunch. Just ask them questions; they'll share with you. They will be a resource to you. Now that was a good start. Yeah, you know what I'm saying uh, for her. And for us in building this relationship. And again, it's, you know, just have some common sense on how you put a millennial in charge of a 60 year old. It can be done and it can be done successfully. The other side of that is if you haven't continued to develop your employees especially Griffin in the world of technology that puts the older employee at a tremendous disadvantage.
2: Yeah,
0: And that's where they get so defensive because it isn't just about the new EMR anymore. You know, it's right. about, you know, one note. It's about all sorts of communication within the practice you know, what they're using and that older employee, if they haven't been brought along with the technology immediately goes defensive and it can unfortunately cost them their job. So that's also part of a culture, you know, is is keep developing people, keep giving them new skills or find a niche where they can succeed. And I think that's critical. So it's interesting. I have a quote, if you were getting ready to end the podcast, about a leader's credibility. I'd love to hear it. It's a leader's credibility begins with personal success. People only follow you truly if you come across as a true success, but it ends with helping others achieve their personal success. And I, I think that's, That's a summary. Whether you're ever a manager, whether ever your name is on the org chart in the top echelons, whether as again the corporate term you're in the C suite, you can be a person of influence, you can be a leader to other people in your family in the community and with those at work.
2: Well said. And I think that perfectly encapsulates what you shared with us today, which is leadership principles that I think would have been successful three or four decades ago, even if they weren't common, that are successful today, that I think are gonna be successful three or four decades from now. And I've really enjoyed the conversation that we've had. And I hope that you share it with your grandkids so that they drop me an email so that I can tell them how cool you are. It's been such a pleasure. Ms. Rita Gruber, thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health.
0: Uh, Thank you, Griffin. Bye-bye now.
1: You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones.